podcast. This is Mike Savage, Charlie Laura, Honey, and Austin. And today we have something extra special. One might say it's better than Bouillon. Uh, it is a clam base, clam gansett. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to learn. Neither do it's we. It's because it didn't <laughs> exist until two, you know, it, it doesn't even exist yet. We've, you know, nobody in the world, I believe, has ever had a clam gansett. Yeah, um, but we're about to be the first. Do, should we? And for those of you who weren't uh, uh, listeners to the podcast before today, we may want to tell you the backstory. Actually, we'll pause so you can go and listen to the first three episodes. <laughs> oh, <God>. Right, <laughs> exactly. But suffice it to say, last time was a walk down memory lane. We described our first beers. Mine was Nanny Bow or National Bohemian. Austin filled us in on the. Apparently, the infamous Bow Rita, which is a natty bow. With it's real. I, we can't make this stuff up. Austin's had one. Oh, yeah. It's a natty bow with Old Bay seasoning on the rim. We left last podcast dedicated to finding a uh, New England regional equivalent. Yes. And here we are. And with that said, we have the Narragansett Lager. So, question on pronunciation. Do we say a Narragansett or Narragansett or Narragansett? Like how? As a former resident of Narragansett, yes. um, <laughs> I am going to say it's Narragansett. You're the most qualified person. It's actually Gansett. We're, we're, we're sure Gansett, the shortening of the Gansett. I, but I'm known for butchering names, so like literally <laughs> last person you should be asking. Okay, okay. All right, we have a Gansett tall boy in front of us. Yeah, we have 24 ounces. We spent a fair amount of time over the last week deciding on what to what to line the rim with. Very much. Uh, and we've settled on a clam base. Yes, this is um, from the Better Than Bullion Company, which which is really, uh, they make terrific stuff. Uh, I don't know if we're allowed to do, you know, product placement or little spots here, but in fact, you know, very nice for soup and, and, and broth and stock. Uh, so yes. it's basically a clam concentrate with spices. Yes. We're yes. pleased with the consistency. We've loaded up Very two pleased. of them. It's more liquid than I had thought. I thought yeah. that we need to mix it with water, you get get, it, but that's actually perfect. You get a full 38 servings out of 8 ounces. Um, <laughs> it goes a long way. All right, so Mike is loading up his glass. What Why he's right, doing so this the technique right, right. is, yeah. is quarter turns, back and forth. And a plate, you, it's, got a, it's a plate of the better than bouillon clam base. You dip your glass, yep. obviously upside down, and in the. You might the get the rim. You might even want to stir it in yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, and unlike salting the rim of a margarita glass, you don't even need to wet the rim in order for the salt right. to stick. Of course, yeah. because our better than bouillon is already a sort of it's a, coating a thick yes. liquid. Indeed. With uh, that said, uh, I have sensitized my nose for the last one week of uh, to be a best aromatherapist, but I'm pretty curious to take a sip. Not of this, but of the beer with the dip. Okay, so, you really yeah. I'm really going to try so excited uh, about the claim again. Shall I? Yeah. All right, I'm opening. Oh, and boy. <laughs> that is a satisfying sound. And, uh, our, man, <laughs> our man Ani's going to have his first beer with bouillon on it. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I have poured my Gansett into my... I'm just going to have a sip. And By the way, the, 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 the drink, though, it's never been tried before. already has a name, courtesy of Austin. The man himself. The clam Gansett. Right. Yeah. And and that was inspired actually right by the clam Ganza, which I'd been planning with Mike really. It just at lunch one day. I didn't even have to bring it up, but Mike's just such a cool dude that he told me about this amazing clam bake that I'm now gonna go to at Franklin Farms in uh, in Massachusetts, just near the Rhode Island border there. And and so it just already 
in my mind the term Clamaganza, which is going to happen in July, and then of course Clamagansett. Okay, so are we are we are we doing this? No, we're doing this. Yeah. All right. One at a time. Okay. Let's do it all together. There's no point. Okay. Nobody should suffer anymore. Okay. Here we go. The first time in history. I'll have this. Salty for sure. Okay, so I just had the clam base. Oh boy. Very salty. I like it. Now, <laughs> let's talk about the first, you know, the, 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 the opening, the introductory, the middle, and the final notes. <clears throat> also, I think you've got some on your nose. Yeah, you, I, I you wanna, do. You, I you start have clam like base on your nose. How I have it around my mouth and I'm still licking it in. <laughs> yes, exactly. I'm taking another swig here. I'm going to do one more. I don't know. I think, I think I've discovered a problem with the clamagansa, which is the, the bouillon. It does. It does. Maybe we need a stronger beer. Of course, you know, we're, we're using a, a thin, watery lager. Whoa, this is... <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, yeah, no. Sorry, no, no, I don't. No offense. Honestly, the first sip's actually pretty good. Yeah. Bold the, 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 the hit of, of, of salt and spice, mm. it's not fishy. I would not use the lobster bouillon, which we've opened, which is... <laughs> well, but, 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 yeah, but, but did anyone try well, we it? Haven't tried it? We didn't try yeah, it. Somebody I mean, try it. Somebody's got to try it. But I, but the clam bouillon, it gives you a little hit of of, uh, of salt and spice, yeah. and mm-hmm. the beer washes right over it with the sort of the oh, sort please, of malty please, please. back finish. The only mm-hmm. problem I'm having with the clam against it is the extent to which I'm licking yeah. clam off of my lips. Yeah. The, for you need a napkin. Um, pro tip, napkins are required. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm very happy with the finish, uh, but initially, so of course, there's also the sort of logistics of it where your, your lips and tongue touch the rim before the liquid is entering yeah. your mouth. So of course. you get a big... So you need a big... Right. And yeah. so you need to drink quickly, don't hesitate, and then they balance, <laughs> How okay? How describe the finish, Austin? I, I, I describe it as, as smooth and refined, yeah. Yeah. And, and smooth. as sort of reeking of New England. It's like, I'm at the, it's like I'm at the seashore, and... It's actually a summer day. It's a summer day in New England in one sense. It's a summer day yeah, next ocean. to the, the clam shack. It's, 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 it does. It's, yeah. It feels like I'm drinking ocean water. That's what it is. Right. It's so salty. That's got right. ocean, yeah. ocean water with beer. Yeah. yeah, and we can continue to iterate this in so many ways, like adding a little bit of kelp. You know, just either, either extract or on the rim. Of course, you could take your nori. Imagine just straight up to get your seaweed, cut it up fine, which would then stick to. I mean, right? Maybe we're starting this sort of is a fusion. Wow. Well, we're gonna, I think we would welcome input from listeners on how to iterate the claim against it. I'm not handing yeah. money. Yeah. Yeah. Ryan for his first sip of beer. Boy. I'm not sure this is the best place to start. Yeah, what a, what a place to start. <laughs> what a place to start. <laughs> it did not. Yeah, yeah that, it's exactly like what you described, like drinking salt water, mm-hmm. but with beer in it. So that's that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have to be the aromatherapist every time, so that's good. <laughs> Yeah. All right, there you go, Ani. Yeah, mm. holy smokes. But really, though, I mean, about no offense to Narragansett, but it is, of course, a very mild beer. And given how strong the clam base is, you could then say, well, maybe we should be using a different kind of beer. Right. More, to, more to consider and, and discover. Yeah. Yeah. So, so listeners, listeners out there, if you're inspired to go and get some clam base and, and tr- try this out with a you know, West Coast IPA, East Coast IPA, some yep. waters, some some saisons, some sours. Something. 
What about a sour? The, bring the bring the base over to Trillium, right? Yeah. And then and then just get get a bunch of Trillium beer. There's there's a legitimate question as to whether you would do this with a high quality craft beer, but. I actually don't. I kind of like the clam bakes on the mm. on the rim. I'm, I'm I'm not against it. No, yeah, no. Yeah. I would put in the category of like Pinterest ideas gone horribly wrong. <laughs> no, I don't think it's went horribly wrong. No, no, I actually kind of like so, it. No, yeah, no it's it not really a wrong flavor. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Yeah. You can see it could go horribly. It could go horribly. Austin, compared to the Borita, um yeah, let's be real. The bow, the bow Rita is a thing for a reason. It actually is great. I mean, it's spicy okay, so and salty and works. If you again, okay, if you so don't overdo the rim, the bow Rita is genuinely satisfying, and you go back to it once the novelty has worn off. They say no mere novelty actually delicious. And this might be this more may novelty. in the end be be more novelty than than scrumptious. Now, now I'm just throwing out ideas. Maybe there. I don't know yet. You put on that liquid base around the edge. That is a perfect um, now holding of. You could put something else onto that, right? Well, right, it's very sticky. sticky. Yeah, very right. sticky. So, like the seaweed. Se- seaweed or, you know, breadcrumbs or Caramel. something. All right, so to the TBD, we <laughs> may be back here. With Parmesan. Parmesan. <laughs> Absolutely, of course. We may be back with the Clam version 2. Now, moving to our next <clears throat> one. Can yes, I do that? No, please, okay. please. In, in, the, in order to make it through the Clem Against experiment, we dedicated ourselves to having a true craft beer. Mm, mm, and I smart. brought, we made a commitment to each other that we would drink only good beer and only breweries that have made a real commitment to sustainability. Yeah, yeah. So we're rewarding ourselves. I brought what I believe to be one of the great beers. Oh, look how cloudy that is. Honestly, in America. I'm not not going, I I mean, I realize it's only episode four. There's a long way to go. But this, I think, is a really good beer. This is from Treehouse Brewery in Charlton, Mass. Often voted the best beer in Massachusetts. Um, This is Green, which is one of their two signature New England IPAs. And uh, we'll we'll take a sip. This is our reward yeah. for the experiment. So and, and so for for listeners right who can't see, and especially for folks who aren't accustomed to New England IPAs, this thing is very cloudy, mm-hmm. which surprises me because right as a sort of West Coast well, IPA this is person, the signature of a East Coast IPA, of a New England IPA. That well, that's delightful. Yeah. yeah, that's truly great. Yes. Yeah. That's what, 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 what the treehouse is able to do, and they specialize in the, in these ideas. Fruit is balanced. Yeah, yes, there's incredibly balanced. There's a there's a big flavor, mm-hmm. a lot of hops, but you don't get the bitterness at the end. Mm-hmm. This one's a little more piney um, than the Julius. Julius is even a little bit fruitier. Both of those, those are their signature IPAs. They're excellent. Now, here's the part I really love, which I did not know until we were preparing for this podcast. Treehouse has, as one of its founding principles, um, protect uh, long-term sustainability and, um, and environmental responsibility. In fact, respect the environment, invest for the long haul, and kill short-sightedness are mm. part of their founding principles. Death to myopia, yes. Very yeah. good. And when they uh, moved to their uh, new facility in 2017 in Charlton, they committed to a wastewater treatment program that they have now taken even further than what they committed to the town. They committed to the town that they would bring their wastewater strength below that of standard a standard household, but they've gone further by partnering with a company in Watertown called Cambrian Innovation. Hmm. 
Cambrian Innovation makes an echovolt reactor and a membrane bioreactor, both of which have been installed at Treehouse. Uh, that renders their wastewater stream 99, uh, eliminates contaminants and pollutions 99.99% uh, .99 or 99.9%, making it usable for irrigation and sanitation. And the, um, the bioreactor takes the wastewater and makes it into a, a general, uh, obviously uses an anaerobic digestion process to produce, produce all, all, uh, energy, mm -hmm. inside energy. Plus, uh, Treehouse is sending its solid organic waste, which is principally the uh, spent grain after yeah. the brewing process, to an anaerobic digester <clears throat> in Hadley Mass operated by Vanguard Renewables. It goes in there with farm waste to power a dairy farm called Longview Farm. So, all in all... Cow power. Cow power, impressive um, beer, and a very impressive commitment to sustainability. Sure, just imagine with the craft beer boom in America how much spent grain there is now, just from the small brewers, let alone the mass brewers. Yeah. Uh, and it's just staggering. Yeah. Right? And so is this now, Charlie, would this qualify... I've heard, let's, for the listeners out there, of course, I've heard of corn-based ethanol and other so biofuels, but this is fundamentally different than that, right, because you've already extracted the sugars from the grains and turned them into alcohol, of course, through fermentation. So right. is, this, is this what would, might even be called a cellulosic fuel? Because you've, you're, you're not using sugar like corn-based right. ethanol. You're using the indigestible, you know, to humans, otherwise worthless material left over yeah. from a brewing process and then turning that into methane. Isn't that better than using sugar to make biofuel? Well, yes, and the, uh, the digesters um, are, uh, are dramatically reducing the carbon footprint of their organic race. But it's, it reduces it by 85%. So the anaerobic digestion right. process, anaerobic meaning the digesting is happening without... Oxygen. Indeed. Uh, certain organisms, and I may know more about this than I do of the science of it, but these, these, uh, these organisms that operate in an anaerobic environment break down the farm waste, and that farm waste, that, that the production is essentially methane, which is used to power the facility, and the carbon released in that process is 85% less than if you just landfilled that waste. Totally. Yeah. Right. So you're making usable energy with much lower emissions and yeah. you're offsetting what would otherwise be grid power and so the carbon right. footprint comes down and it's, it's yeah. very sustainable. And out of an otherwise waste product, which right. is of course right. unlike sugarcane or corn right. or palm oil or yeah. ethanol, those aren't waste products. Those are products that people could be eating otherwise, right. which right. is a nice thing. Yeah. And, and the byproduct from anaerobic digestion is can also be used in, in farming and agriculture again, at least the majority of it. Some of it is you know, sent to the, the landfill, but at that point it's not very carbon intensive. No, you're absolutely right. And in fact, Treehouse notes the fact that the byproduct of the digestion at, um, at the Longview Farm goes into um, a fertilizer on the farm. And Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, you, though you did not mention this, but. Um, which is very implicit in terms of when you have your water kind of recirculating after cleaning, it means they use only two gallons of water to produce one gallon of beer, which is very impressive considering mm. the uh, industry average is pretty high. It's, yes. it's around seven or eight. Uh, right. Yeah. That's a great point, Ani. So the water to beer ratio at Treehouse, as you say, is two gallons of water for a gallon of beer, beer which is yeah. terrific. maybe 25% of the industry average. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's impressive. impressive. 
Yeah. So, I mean, two of the things that they're doing very well here is water management and waste management. And, uh, you know, as we transition into a, a deeper conversation about climate laws and, and really New York City, it's quite interesting because waste um, management and this anaerobic digestion is one solution that, that does not work for cities, but for um, because, because of the land area that's required for this generation. But getting that waste out and producing energy out of it is extremely important. Yeah. And so, so what we're looking at overall is a combination of solutions and what these guys are doing is a great opportunity for them. And as we discuss about uh, climate in New York City and, and opportunities there, there's also some really intriguing things that can be done. Just to, uh, sorry, just to add, uh, to when you have a membrane bioreactor, I'll be very curious, obviously this is something that I will dive deeper after this conversation on the podcast, is EcoVolt, I want to see, generally when you have bioreactors, the electricity consumption to kind of have that process of reverse osmosis, uh, uh, you know, across the membrane to clean out uh, pollutants is very intensive. Sure. And I'd be very interested to see what they are doing on that front. I'm sure they're doing it if they're so conscious about their waste and water treatment. I'm sure they're also very um, aware of their electricity consumption and must must have already uh, invested in energy efficiency on well, this side. Well, it's a great question, Ani, because um, any project that it, um, is targeted towards overall sustainability, you have to take the entire project life cycle balance to understand its carbon footprint. Your point being that these membrane bioreactors use a lot of electricity, electricity in their processes, and so you then have to understand what's the overall carbon footprint reduction of the project. Uh, they, um, Treehouse says that this process overall, that is the bioreactor, uh, the EcoVolt reactor, and the uh, uh, the uh, the utilization of their waste in the in the anaerobic digester of the farm, reduces their footprint, carbon footprint, by twenty over twenty one thousand metric tons per year. So they've done that carbon balance. But you're right; that's an interesting point. Is that what technology you, you choose has a lot to do with the overall carbon emissions reduction. I'm sure they're already project. doing it. Yeah, you know? they must have done the math, but yeah. somewhere in there they have to account for that electricity in the bioreactor, right? Yeah. yeah. But that's actually, it's a very good segue into RNG and renewable natural gas, which will be so, which we actually look to discuss later in, in a few seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, this was a nice reward for um, for pi pioneering the Clamagansett. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, you guys like the the whole segment is a reward. Yeah, the Clamagansett <laughs> and <laughs> yes. the treehouse. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say, let's let should we rate the Clamagansett um, on a on, uh, on a sort of one to scale? No, no. Uh, straight up, ch choosing a beverage uh, on a hot summer day. Ten meaning, ten meaning you choose fantastically it. refreshing, yeah. ideal. One being this is trash. I see. Okay, yeah. so like ten is like um, you know like all right, like a six would be like Mike's hard lemonade for me. <laughs> An eight might be a like a margarita. Um, a ten. Have you had a ten yet? A ten might be like a wonderfully made gin and tonic. Right. Um, but uh, this right. would be uh, in the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> so you would never choose this again. 
I would be concerned if I ever saw <laughs> next to a cop in my life. So I, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, I would I would actually say I don't know. I would I would give this a two or a three, and for, because of the novelty value, I might even bump it to a five in in periodic rotation on a hot summer day. I, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, no. This yeah. means: Would you do it in, for yourself or for other people to make them try it? Because if I'm saying for the novelty aspect of being eccentric and forcing other people to try no, no. this, this is: Would you sit down and pour this for yourself on a hot summer day by yourself with no other, with no one else in the room, no one other, right? Yeah, no one else, no one's watching. Uh, I don't, you know, I can't say that I would do that, <laughs> but I can say that I, but my curiosity has, has been, has been stimulated, has been peaked right here. So you so many other ways to do this. So again, coming back to the clam bake, right? What happens if you take a really big and help me again, Mike, for the, it, it, you say a cohog, right? Cohog. Exactly. Cohog. You take a big clam that's been cooked. Now, what, what if you, but un, just gently, like a half cooked clam, like a half cooked cockle. Like as I as I love them in Singapore, I never get the full cup. I always get half. Guys, listeners, if you go to Singapore, always go order your cockles half cooked, like that. Then take the clam and rub it on the rim. So you've just got juice, and then and, and, then and do that repeatedly. And do that repeatedly. So I, I you know what, I would agree. I, I'm not sure I would sit down and do the clam again. Yeah, I can't do this. 1.0. No, yeah. no, 1.0. I, I think that we are onto something, and we should yeah. we should iterate. That's because it. I think there is a version of the clam Gansett that we would happily. It's going to work. Margaritas are you know they they're controlling the market for for uh, salted rims and, <laughs> and rimmed uh, drinks. Rimmed and, drinks. Yeah. We're going to change that. We're going to spray right into the rim drink market. <laughs> Just All to right. close out this thought, I think what we can do for our viewers going forward is kind of rate all the beers that we rate in each episode on a scale of 10 wow. and then kind of have a review of because obviously it's relative to the next beer which might be better and you want right. to bump that higher and we can we should definitely do that's that. an excellent point yeah. okay, okay. Um, well then uh, where does uh, Treehouse's Green I consider this one of my top beers of all time, personally. So I, I would put that. At, I, I would, I would put it at a nine and a half, leaving some room for a beer I've never had. And it's before. really tasty. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's very good. Uh, for me, that was a uh, eight point seven three. <laughs> yeah, I think it's between eight and a nine as well. Yeah. It's very drinkable. Yeah. Very cool. There's, Excellent. There's going to be a lot of beers out there. I want it. You, you know, got to leave some room to go. Yeah, I yeah, hear yeah, you. yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, till next time, and we figure out, you know, a better beer potentially. Well, we'll be back and on to the next section. back from the Clamagansett. Uh, we're, we're ready to talk about something more substance. New York City. Can I just note that Austin is sipping his Clamagansett I really am. as we roll into this segment. Can and I have 30 seconds, Mike, to, to elaborate on something? Once you break through the rim, it, in that first that first sip is tough because it's a lot of clam and not very much yeah. Gansett. But yeah. then now you can modulate the amount of clam base you have because it's just the left half of your mouth has yeah. base and the right half is a clean rim. No, no, you're and right. And now it's really good. And and, right, and, and Charlie's joining in now. It's I'm telling myself that even if I were alone and weren't trying to impress my coworkers, that I would be doing this voluntarily. 
Mm-hmm. I really think so. I, you know, and and with that said, New York City passed the climate <laughs> by an account of forty-five to two in earlier in May. Can you believe that? Forty-five to two. Forty-five to the, two. The New York City Council. That's yeah. great. Good for them. So uh, this has been billed as the Green New Deal for New York City, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. the first of hopefully many uh, climate mobilization acts. That really has a lot of teeth in in creating action and implementing that action. But not only have we seen this uh, this this swell starting New York, but also other cities such as Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington D.C. have started putting together strong legislation that, that will wrap in you know uh, energy efficiency, clean generation, new build, everything that we've talked about on some of these earlier podcasts is starting to come to fruition here. And you know, with real teeth, absolutely. Yeah. And what the, so the 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 Washington D.C., Chicago, L.A., and San Francisco uh, uh, ordinances require buildings to essentially procure 100% renewables by a date certain, typically between 2030 and 2035. And then the New York bill, which you'll get into in a second, Mike, is a slightly different, but all of them are enforceable local ordinances that have real teeth that are driving some of the biggest cities in the country or the buildings in the biggest cities in the country, which are, of course, typically 75% or more of the emissions in that city to uh, completely different choices around uh, around their carbon footprints. And also how historic all these cities are, which means the buildings are also pretty old. Right. So retrofitting yeah. becomes so, so so much more important than right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. So I, you know, all of these um, ordinances really only matter if there's something that's making these people do it. So let's dive into the details of New York because that's. Our largest city and our most well-known city. So, Austin, you know, can you give us, you know, first of all, what what are the mandates in the next? Because it, it's sort of scheduled out over the next, you know, twenty years. Indeed. What are we looking in the short term in terms of goals, and what are the the teeth or, or the 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 what, what's going to be the action to make people do that in the next short term? And then let's talk about long term. Yeah. Well, uh, the, the regulation, it's actually more than one law. So you think of it as the New York City building emissions law, but it's, it's actually multiple laws that come together to function as a single regulation. That uh, There are four time periods in the law, and so it begins in 2024, and the first time period is from 2024 until 2030. Then we have from 2030 until, if I'm not wrong, 35, then 35 to 40, and then 40 onwards. Yeah, but we only have complete clarity for the, the 2024 to 2029, uh, uh, 2030 period. And then we have partial clarity for 2030 onwards. And, and what I mean here is that there are two pieces to this. One, what are the emissions factors that are used to figure out how much CO2 a building is responsible for? And so, of course, when I say factor, I mean you have a factor for uh, grid electricity, how much you use. Um, steam, of course, in a, in a city like New York, you have an enormous amount of steam, which is a fascinating thing in, in and of itself. In natural gas, combusted on the premises are the three big ones, and you have different factors for them. And as I'm sure Charlie will talk about later, um, we're looking forward to a factor for cogeneration, which it gets tricky because, of course, if we're using the waste heat and plus adding to a more resilient grid, anticipating the next Sandy event, um, then resiliency also matters. So that's one thing. And, and then, just, and then sorry, there's a limit. 
started to interrupt, um, Austin, the steam is an interesting component because yeah. the steam that a city like New York is using, and there's there's a there's an analog here in Boston, is essentially a steam loop. Uh, it's a central power plant or power plants that are generating steam that's then distributed to buildings that are that essentially are linked to that loop and that use it for their heating needs typically. Uh, what's happening in a lot of cities is that buildings are beginning to opt out of that steam loop and there's some question as to its long-term survivability. Mm-hmm. Certainly the remaining, uh, uh, the remaining customers of the steam loop, uh, as they shrink, are responsible for larger and larger sunk costs in terms of the infrastructure. So right. um, that steam loop and what are, its, what are its real emissions factors? How much energy goes into making that steam? All of that stuff is a big question, but that's true of all of these inputs yep. in the law. And, yeah. and needless to say, the source of much um, m- m- fairly intense lobbying, one would assume, as to how the carbon emissions absolutely is are determined for those. Absolutely, yeah. And, yeah. and people, you know, you drive down a street in New York City, and you often see, of course, those steam vents with steam pouring out of that's them. That's it. So that's and so you know that the system, of course, is inefficient in some ways. Now, of course, right. it's better than having one of those steam tunnels explode. Right, uh, you know, you'd rather vent that off, but anyway. So, so steam, the steam emissions factor is a big question. And then the other question is, what is the limit, right, in, imposed on these buildings? And so, the law uh, makes clear a limit for twenty twenty four, the twenty twenty four to twenty twenty nine period, and then the twenty thirty to thirty five period. And that's where we have clarity. Where we don't have complete clear clarity is the emissions factors for twenty thirty to thirty five. Uh, so, so it, it makes it makes planning out into the mid twenty thirties difficult. But at least for the mid to late twenty twenties, we have clarity. And and the real miracle here is that this is genuinely progressive legislation with some teeth in, in the form of a magic number two hundred and sixty eight. And what is two hundred and sixty eight? That's the dollar value that you will pay in fines for every metric ton of CO two equivalent over the limit. Uh, that you are for any given building. And this applies to buildings over 25,000 square feet, I should say. How many such buildings are there in New York City? Over 10,000. So, and in Chicago, LA, who knows? But of course, 10,000 such buildings in New York. So, uh, and so we run, we run numbers here to just hypotheticals. And, uh, of course, this adds up to a ton of money because a ton of CO2 is not that much CO2. You, that's, that's actually, uh, most buildings produce far more than that, of course. And then the limits are, are stringent and $268 per ton over. So that's, that's what we're dealing with here. Each, yeah. And each type of building has a, um, essentially a, a carbon intensity allowance per square foot. And then, right. So you take so, and 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 those are determined by use type. So there's a you, there's a, a carbon intensity limit for a hotel versus a residential. You take that 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 intensity number, you multiply it by your square feet, you get a total volume. A a a a, a building which we're working with, which is a full square block in New York, um, has a. A limit in 2024 of roughly 13,600 metric tons of CO2, based on Austin's analysis. That's the limit they're going to have to meet. Uh, it's a project we're working on. It looks like they'll meet that limit in 2024. By this, by the time you hit 2030, that building has to has to meet a tar- a total limit of about 7,600 metric tons. So, roughly speaking. Uh, as Car- as Austin said, it's a progressive legislation. It, it's going to drive emissions reductions lower and lower towards that goal of 80% reduction by 2050. 
Uh, they're looking to take 40% um, of the carbon out of the system uh, by 2030. So any right. one building will have to be emit 40% less car, car, carbon by 2030 than it right. did in 2024. And that's, that's hard to do. And the neat thing, the neat thing about the structure of this of this legislation too is, is, say, comparing it to what Mike you were talking about earlier with a mandate that you procure all of your energy from renewable sources. That doesn't directly incentivize efficiency per se. No. Right? Of course, you can be using a staggering amount of wind or solar and still be compliant if so long as it's all renewable. The nice thing about a, a, a code such as the one that we have in New York is that, of course, you're you're incentivized to get clean power because, of course, then your emissions factor for all, you know, you know 100% clean electricity goes down to zero, or if you have on-site clean generation, then you have zero factor. But then you're incentivized to be efficient as well. It's a great point. It's a great point. I mean, what form these uh, local ordinance, ordinances should take is, is, a, is a, something of great interest to us, and there are a number of variables. But I think this point about does the ordinance drive energy efficiency before you look to renewables is a great one because it's the most cost-effective way. It is. I, saw, I, I presented um, yesterday to a, uh, 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 an architecture and consortium, um, yeah. Yeah, consortium of architects and uh, project managers um, who are doing a bunch of retrofit projects all over the region. And their sustainability director wanted us to present um, because she wanted her project manager colleagues to know where to turn for funding for uh, energy efficiency projects that are getting left on the table. The other presenter is a solar um, design firm that just completed the first net zero building in Seattle. And uh, he showed his last slide of this project. He showed... um, the solar canopy that they put on the roof to bring the building to net zero. And um, what, he, uh, what he illustrated, he had a very w- willing and interested and supportive director of planning at the city level who allowed him to build that solar canopy slightly larger than the building's footprint. And they called it an awning in order to get it mm. through the regs. Uh, but it, it was a little bit bigger than the footprint, but it was certainly doesn't look out of place and it's not affecting any neighboring buildings. The reason he was able to do that was because the energy use intensity of the building was a 16, meaning it was highly energy efficient. His slides showed what the size of the solar canopy would have had to be to bring that building to net zero if it met code, if it met lead, and if it was like the average building in America. Yep. Needless to say... The footprint of the solar was two, three, four, five times bigger and looked ridiculous. So he said our ability to get to effective functioning buildings depends on doing the efficiency first. It was great to hear a solar designer say this building worked because the efficiency came first. Always. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And, and, you know, reducing and then producing is, is really the mantra here. You have to... Reduce everything that you possibly can, and with buildings that are already up and running and have you know historical loads, and it's just it's really tough to to meet that sometimes with with these uh, um, I would say technologies because they're they're um, ancient, right? Right? You know, you have boilers from the 1940s. You have uh, you know um, cogen systems that that can only offset so much. So, in the flip side. 
once you get to reducing as much as you can and you produce what you can on site because these buildings are extremely tall, right, some of them, and you don't have a lot of space for a solar awning, right. is a virtual power purchase agreement a solution for some of these um, building owners? A uh, virtual power purchase agreement a solution? Well, what do you think? Ani, is it sound like a solution? Yeah, absolutely. It's a very... Uh, it's a short-term solution to this because, okay, so my my thought about virtual PPA is, is a little prejudiced in the sense I don't understand the whole thing, but I know this, if you have, so basically talking about social equity, only people who have money or basically building owners who, are, who have money and tenants paying the rent on a very regular basis can buy this and participate in a virtual PPA. What about communities that are, I saw this report that showed wherever the city's plants in New York City are, basically the gas-fired plants, they are very close to uh, uh, populations which are uh, minorities, which are uh, low-income communities. So now, do their, do the tenants there have, is there, is there a business model to kind of buy virtual power at a very cheap rate for these for these uh, houses and buildings. So that's my first thought about virtual PPS. But having said all of that, majority of the uh, buildings which have higher than 25,000 square foot are in the Manhattan area uh, where affluence is, where basically the affluent population is present and it's a very good way moving forward. But I think it's in a short term, there has to be little more discussions on how virtual PPA can be made cheaper. Yes, I think it's it's an important question. So, um, as uh, going back to the Austin summary of the bill, uh, particularly when you hit twenty thirty, seventy five percent or more of the buildings will uh, will not meet their limits, um, yeah. and so they will all face or, or will not not without significant retrofits or without buying significant uh, power uh, renewable power through a virtual PPA or uh, some other mechanism. Um, you know that uh, the cost uh, to, of uh, per ton for the fine is, as Austin said, two hundred sixty-eight dollars. That's at least four times higher than the consensus number for uh, the price of a ton of carbon yep. in, in on the uh, on a on a fully loaded basis. Uh, economists will tell you that if you actually priced carbon pollution in properly. Mm-hmm. In terms of its societal environmental impacts, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of sixty to seventy dollars is usually the number that people come up with. By example, by total side note, on the voluntary carbon markets in the U.S., a ton of carbon is trading now at around five to ten. Right. So we haven't, we have not internal, and in Europe, in the carbon markets, a ton of carbon is trading at about three to four. So we have not fully properly priced not carbon. At all. But the, the, but the fine in New York is much higher than the consensus proper price, which is yeah. in that $60, $70 per ton rate. Well, we, so the question becomes, what, is, what are the options for a building owner generally to, to get under the cap in 2030? Ani's raised an important question, which is what are the equity considerations for uh, low-income communities and, and buildings for getting under the cap? Now, they are their own category. Affordable housing is its own category. But they have to meet performance targets, um, and the uh, and the options. What's going to be fascinating in New York is that you're going to have a market for carbon, right? You're going to have uh, a, a, the fine is one number, the cost of, of buying into a virtual PPA, which is essentially buying um, 
renewable energy from a project that might be far away, right? Uh, you're, it's not actually on your roof, but you're buying renewable power from another project, maybe aggregated with other buildings. Um, you can buy renewable energy credits. That's in the um, that's in the statute, so the ordinance itself. Yeah. The price of those renewable energy credits that qualify under the New York ordinance is going to be sky high. Yeah. Because you're going to have 75% of the building bidding for those. So um, there'll be an interesting market for how to get under the cap. So I mean, just to close out on that and provide a solution also, not just a question, would be to kind of bracket this, how you price the externality. You bracket it in terms of uh, the income, or you bracket it in terms of better ways. I'm definitely not the best person, but that's the first thing that comes to my mind is basically you have brackets for that fine of how much you find each um, each locality, each neighborhood or building type. Well, right. There's only one fine number, and it's that 268. Now, there are these exempt groups, right? So, say, low-income housing, hospitals. Of course, we recognize that running MRI machines is energy intensive and that it would be silly to treat a hospital as an apartment complex. And the law recognizes that. But there, there is no, there are other means of treating these, these special categories, such as uh, what Charlie mentioned, these qualitative rather than quantitative measures. So you say, if you are exempt, you're not fully exempt. And here again, cheers to the New York City Council. You're exempt in some ways, but you're not fully off the hook. We demand, the law demands, that you show us this sort of laundry list of energy efficiency measures that you must, to whatever extent you are financially able, and if you claim you're not financially able, you have to prove it, right. uh, you have to go through and install these 11 things, and they are sort of the bread and butter efficiency measures that Renew deals with every day. Uh, insulation, lighting, HVAC, the, the good stuff. And, and if you claim not to be able to afford LEDs, you have to tell us why, because in fact, over the life cycle of an LED, it's cheaper. And so, absolutely. So. And you know what? You know what's fascinating? We have um, two projects that are performing in New York now. They've been performing for a while. That means we closed them out and the customer is paying us for energy savings. Mm-hmm. We have one that's nearing the end of construction, should finish it by the end of the summer. And then we have one in design. Um, that through that network, we have you know an ongoing conversation with building owners in New York, and Mike Mike has developed a significant pipeline of projects in New York as well. So you, we're starting to hear questions about this law, real questions about what does it mean for my building and how do I comply. Right. Uh, we've been we, we've been contacted by and have joined the New York City Climate Action Alliance, which is a coalition of building owners and nonprofits. Um, we're going to be. Presenting ourselves as a as a potential solution for for buildings to get under the cap, um, but but uh, but it, but you can see the next generation conversation for renew in cities that do this right. All of a sudden, the background savings number potentially for our projects isn't just the value of the energy savings. It's actually the, it's actually fine. Right, and fine avoidance. And to be true, to be clear, it's actually the fine and or the price of the other ways of getting under the cap. Right. But at the outside limit, um, that fine, let's uh, happen to know that one of the buildings we're looking at has faces a fine. If, if they didn't do anything different from between now and 2030, their fine would be around a million and a half dollars a year. Now... They will presumably identify other ways to get below the cap that are less expensive than that. But whatever that, 
most that least expensive option other than efficiency is that becomes your savings number it's no longer right. you know we usually build our projects around the, the the amount of savings we're creating off of their electricity bill yeah. they spend a million dollars a year and we can save them 500,000 we have to build the economics of the project around that $500,000 a year in savings right? right they have to make payments to us that are something less than 500,000 if they're facing a fine of a million dollars a year, right? If they can now make payments to us that are nine hundred thousand dollars a year, and still, and still be ahead, means we can do a much bigger and more expensive, but also more effective deeper. energy efficiency yeah. retrofit that runs deeper yeah. by design. So, so right. this this reminds me of so in the fall. Um, the Building Energy Exchange of, of New York City uh, partnered with the Passive House, um, which essentially did a deep dive look at what it would take to retrofit a New York City building and make it Passive House. Mm-hmm. And they, they did all the calculations, and essentially at the end of the day, it's a 90-year payback because you need right. triple-pane windows, you need a new facade, you need a new energy plant, you need LEDs, HVACs. The full works, and all of a sudden you are down to that energy-intensive unit, probably close to 16. Right. So, with that being said, you know we all looked at each other and said, "Well, that's not going to work right now. You need a comprehensive legislation, like a carbon adjustment, like what we're talking about right here." And I'd be very interested to see if the Building Energy Exchange went back and redid that, or if we could, you know, build that out and say, "All right, well now." Come twenty thirty, if you do nothing, that might pencil. That's actually a great idea, and that's yeah. exactly the kind of conversation that building will be having. Yeah, yeah. So now, what was a ninety-year payback to become a passive house? What is it now under the energy under under this carbon bill? Exactly. Yeah. And and I want I want to just quickly also point out in case we have any building owners uh, listening to Green Beers, uh, don't assume that the emissions factor for grid electricity will become markedly better or lower or cleaner in the 2030 iteration than the 2024 iteration. You might hope so, but in fact, we know that I believe the year is 2022. It's in the process of being decommissioned. Now, the Indian Point nuclear generating facility is being decommissioned. Nice in some ways, bad in some other ways, because, of course, nuclear is one of our best clean, green generating models. And so in the near term, much of that capacity could be replaced by natural gas, which is not clean, cleaner than coal, but not the greatest. It's entirely possible that the emissions factor associated with grid electricity would not only not even be, not be that much better, it could even be worse depending upon what replaces Indian Point. If it's 100% natural gas, then the grid electricity number is worse. So building owners don't necessarily bank on 100% of the nuclear generating facility being replaced by wind and solar. If it's replaced by natural gas, then it will be harder to comply with the 2030 limit simply on the, the fact that the, the grid electricity factor has gotten worse for you, not better. Right. And, and that points to the number of uh, variables that we don't know about. Indeed. What will the... What will the emissions factor be for grid electricity, what will, it, what will the uh, benefit uh, or, or magnifier be for on-site cogeneration? Uh, Which was not included in the original bill, right? right. The, the cogen factor is not in there right. yet, but they well, know they need one. They w- there might even and most likely will be changes to the, to the emissions coefficient for both steam and natural gas for the, because yeah. what, what's going into creating a steam loop 
And for that matter, if we drive down the number of leaks in the system, wellhead leaks and system leaks in the natural gas exactly. system, exactly. that could reduce the emissions factor for the gas. So there's a lot of moving parts that, that um, building owners and their consultants and partners like us will have to keep track of to yeah. figure out what's the best strategy for going yeah. forward. On the flip side, if some progressive legislator figures out that you need to be including water use in the carbon and the emissions factor for fracked gas, then the factor gets way worse. So again, you, just, yeah. you never quite know. If you're doing a full systems analysis of the environmental and carbon impact of, of unconventional gas, then the number could go up. But as Charlie says, if you deal with all the well lease, then the number goes down. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to close out on the uh, co-generation or gas-fired on-site generation, there's a report that's released by the New York City Council um, which was on basically it's it's titled the Astoria Transformer Explosion and the Transition to a Greener Grid, in which they talk about the the office of the mayor kind of coming out with this report by the 31st of December of this year that talks about the transition of all on-site cogeneration gas-fired units to batteries, mm. and this report uh, is is kind of publishing uh, this out there and it's there right now uh, which I'm reading but uh, that's definitely I was curious to bring this up and hopefully we can discuss this further is how bad is RNG we just spoke about anaerobic digesters and uh, how they can generate natural gas which is basically called renewable natural gas which is comes out of uh, solid waste and uh, does that also come under this uh, bracket of natural gas again or we should, we should probably return to this on the uh, a future podcast, battery storage, uh, renewable natural gas, and the future of yeah. essentially resilience, true resilience at a building that is being able to survive a long-term outage of the electricity grid. What are the options? What are the emissions profiles? And what are the costs of the various options there? Yeah, some, uh, yeah. I actually talked about yeah. green resilience is certainly a, a sound topic for green beers. There you go. Awesome. There you go. Could be the next one. Absolutely. All, All right. right. Um, so I think uh, just on one personal note, um, Ani Rude is no longer the best ping pong player. Oh. <laughs> at, oh. At yeah, actually, it's Mike right now. He won. Um, he's won consecutively for the past one week, sort of, and he's winning four out of five matches, and right. just getting difficult here. I, 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 all right, I call. I call next. <laughs> <laughs> so the king of ping pong is Mike at Renew at this moment. All right, and that, that's uh, that is it. That's a wrap. Until next time, this has been Green Bears. Thank you.